Hello and welcome back to episode 41 of Double Reel, the monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. My name's James Adamson and I'm here to regale you with nerdy chat about films in the world of cinema generally. I'm joined as always by my co-host, also called James Adamson. Welcome James. Thank you very much. It's good to be back. Let's get back into it. Last week we brought you the first part, Double Reel Monthly, with news, reviews of new releases and chat about how we're fitting film watching into our busy, exciting lives. If you haven't heard it yet, please do go back and download it, where you can find reviews of new films including Scrapper, The Equalizer 3 and They Clone Tyrone, my look at David Cronenberg's Map to the Stars, and James's look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. Just to mention again, if you're enjoying the pod, we'd be very grateful you could take a couple of minutes to leave a five-star review about us wherever you get your podcasts. Now it's time for our regular features, all of which are connected by themes of the apocalypse. We start with classics and recommended, where we dip into our list of great films you haven't got round to seeing yet. For this episode, it's Andrei Tarkovsky's revered but highly complex Stalker. Our hidden gem looks at lesser-known or underappreciated films that deserve a wider audience, which this month features the Jeff Nichols independent film Take Shelter. Then it's the one that got away, where we look at projects that filmmakers tried and failed to bring to the big screen. This time we look at David Lynch's decades-long attempt to make Ronnie Rocket. We close our features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This month we discuss the 2007 Will Smith vehicle I Am Legend. Next week, it's the big conversation where we discuss a topic from the film world in more detail. We'll tell you more about that a bit later. First, we've got some messages from listeners about this month's features. On our classic feature, Stalker, Stuart, one of our regulars, says, genuinely thought I was the only person who loved Stalker. Can't remember a film that has made me think more. One of those films that asks you loads of philosophical questions, really clever and thought-provoking. Lee says, like a lot of Tarkovsky's work, I found this endlessly fascinating, even if I'm not sure I entirely understand it. Paul says, I love Stalker just as much as Tarkovsky's other sci-fi Solaris. For me, it's less about understanding every part of the story than it is just allowing yourself to be immersed in his dream world. Eric says, this is one of the 10 best foreign language films of all time. A lot of love for Stalker there. On our hidden gem, Take Shelter, Bob says, this is a brilliant film. I love the atmosphere and the ambiguous ending. Nikki says, great film and my favourite Michael Shannon performance. On our one that got away, David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket, Ben says, I read the script online. It's, well, just wild even by David Lynch's standards. Dennis adds, I think maybe it's better that he didn't make this film. It's like the ideas for all the other films he did make came to him while he was reaching out trying to make Ronnie Rocket. We didn't get that, but look what we did get. On our remake, Hate Watch, I Am Legend, John S. writes, It's so frustrating they used all that shitty CGI. There's a video on YouTube of the original idea people with makeup on, and it's so much better. Uh, Mitch says, if you want to see a good adaptation of a Richard Matheson story, look up Stir of Echoes. Yes, Mitch. And uh, if you like that, listen to episode six of this podcast. Um, For a little bonus after the remake of Watch, we're going to look at uh, our remake that we'd like to have seen, uh, which was Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And WS says, I'm fine with it. It's the weakest film in the series, but I still kind of love it. Ronnie says, I got annoyed with Bruce Spence appearing as an almost identical but different character than when he played a Mad Max 2. Jack says, the first 30 minutes are terrific, then it starts to lose its way, especially when the kids come in. Thanks for all the messages. Now on with the pod. Now for the classics and recommended feature where we try and watch something from our backlog of great films instead of the endless movie repeats rotating on TV. Our watch list includes films one or both of us hasn't seen before and recommendations from you, the audience. Committing to do so for this feature has helped break the mental block around some of those films and mean we got to see and share our thoughts on a wide range of films, 
from the late William Friedkin's groundbreaking police thriller The French Connection to French surrealist fantasy The City of Lost Children. We have a growing list of other films to do for this feature as we keep adding films we haven't seen yet and from the steady stream of audience recommendations. You can go to letterbox.com slash double reel and click watch list for all the films on our list and you can make recommendations there or on all the usual places on our socials. This month we're discussing an all-time classic of art house cinema and of Soviet-era Russian science fiction. Continuing our apocalyptic theme, the classics and recommended feature for episode 41 is Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. So James, you watched uh, Solaris when we were doing the remake of Solaris on the pod before, so you've been exposed to a bit of Tarkovsky beforehand. Um, What did you know about Tarkovsky and about Stalker before we chose to do it for the pod? Uh, Nothing at all. So uh, I'd, I'd never heard of it. So yeah, well, Tarkovsky himself is—he's a name that gets thrown around in the same breath as people like uh, Ingmar Bergman, Federico Fellini, Francois Truffaut. Is one of those like all-time giant film directors, and a lot of those people that you normally hear mentioned as great filmmakers, like Bergman and Truffaut, they—they they all cite Tarkovsky as the master and, and a big influence on them. So we're talking about a very kind of serious filmmaker, and he's one of those filmmaker whose films are seen as more art and culture than mass entertainment and even if you are the kind of person who you know habitually watches a lot of these films it's not the kind of film that everybody's going to just sit down and watch on a Saturday night for a bit of entertainment is it what's what's your relationship to that kind of like art house filmmaking James I've not really watched it I've obviously heard of Fellini and his films are widely praised like they they are like considered absolute classics but it's not really a genre that I've really delved into. Yeah, and which is why this this sort of feature exists, which is really a case of saying, well, everyone keeps talking about this film or this filmmaker, what are their films actually like? And it's just a case of what do you know and what do you learn fr- from watching them? I mean, the, the number of people influenced by Tarkovsky is absolutely huge. I mean, you, you saw Annihilation, didn't you? That Alex Garland film with, uh, is it Natalie Portman, where they go in into a sort of a big sort of area that's been hit by some sort of alien influence and it's full of strange creatures. You yeah. seen that? So yeah. that obviously took a lot of inspiration from this uh, from this film, even though that's based on a book whose writer claims, you know, absolutely denies any influence. But it's like, when you're going to make a film with that theme, Tarkovsky's going to influence you. Um, Nolan said that the way the narrative structure he used for Oppenheimer was a, a partly influenced or inspired by uh, Tarkovsky's film Mirror. A lot of people talk about Tarkovsky's uh, historical epic. Andrei Rublev is a very influential film. And obviously there's Solaris. What did you make of Solaris when you watched it? Because that's obviously quite... A, there are bits of that film that are quite difficult to understand. But what, what did you make of that? Yeah, I didn't find it as difficult as this to kind of grasp. Solaris was a bit easier to follow. That's what everybody says, by the way. But that's just because I think Stalker is specifically that kind of film that is yeah. just very complex. Yeah. But Solaris still had its moments of, you know, confusion and, you know, thought provocation mm-hmm. that Stalker has, but it just wasn't to that kind of level. Yeah. And and the story of Tarkovsky and the story of his films were always kind of round up in him a little bit. I mean, he eventually defected from the Soviet Union. He said he wasn't a dissident, but his films often explored religious themes, which were sort of meant to be forbidden in the Soviet Union. So he had an uneasy relationship with the people who were funding his films. Um, anything like this is going to have um, links back to the environment because he's portraying a future dystopia where the environment's been absolutely ruined. 
and he, he, you know, he didn't create the sets for that. He just filmed in parts of the Soviet Union that have been completely fucking ruined, you know. So there's often a lot of people thinking, well, is he making some sort of statement about, you know, post-industrial Soviet Union? Um, people wonder if the film Stalker, because it features this zone that no one's supposed to go into, whether it predicted Chernobyl. And um, there's some really interesting stuff. There's a, a 2007 video game, which is set after a second Chernobyl disaster, and that's called Stalker. So this is a mythology built up around this this film even when this film was about a mythology building up around a like an imaginary event um and it is quite chilling because the this film stalker features this area called the zone which is really strange you're not supposed to go in and nature's like reclaimed it and if you look at there are photographs you can see of like the disaster area around chernobyl and there are abandoned cities where that are just covered in pine trees now and it's like nature's taking it back and Tarkovsky could could not possibly be predicting Chernobyl, right? But it's just a really weird parallel that's that sprung up after his film. Um, so back background to this in in a some sort of future dystopia or some sort of dystopian world where people are all living in kind of very uh, difficult circumstances. Um, a secret area nearby called the Zone exists, which no one knows quite what's happened. Uh, you can be arrested for even talking about it because it's kind of a Soviet world. Um, but either a meteor hit it or some sort of phenomenon uh, occurred in this area. Um, you get this prologue at the start that says they sent troops in in case they were being invaded. Those troops never came back. So they put barbed wire around the zone and armed guards around it and no one's allowed to go in. Stalkers are people who, for a fee, will take you into the zone if you're curious and want to explore it. But the main reason people will go into this place, uh, the zone, is because it is believed that there is a room in the zone which will grant you any wish. Um, but it's also hinted at that the way that wish is granted to you or the, or the wish that is granted to you might have some very kind of disturbing undertones. And in the film, one of these stalkers who has a pretty unhappy life at home um, but seems drawn to and is on some sort of mission to be a stalker and take people into the zone, takes two people, a writer, only known as writer, and a professor, only known as professor, who want to go to the room and have a wish granted. And when they go into this place, the zone, they find out what a weird and strange place it is where you can't even travel in a straight line, where the zone is almost looking into you and and examining who you are and what kind of person you are might determine whether you even survive going in there. Um... Did you did you sort of have a read about the film before you watched it, or did you just watch it cold, mate? Yeah, I did a little read up about it just yeah. to kind of know what I was going into. And, um, and and what did you find out from that? That it, it it just tries to pose a lot of questions, doesn't it? It makes yeah. it's really trying to make you think about everything, really. Um, yeah, and it, it's it's it's. It's notable by a, a use of a lot of long takes. And I think Solaris had that as well, because I think what he wants you to do is he wants you to be immersed in this world. He doesn't want to just go event, 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 and hop along. He actually wants to say, he wants you to kind of see what's going on. And it, it's, it's quite dreamlike, isn't it? Yeah. The, the, I mean, there's some interesting background to this, that Tarkovsky, he sounds like a difficult guy. I mean, he's absolutely obsessed with, with the, you know, making films where he wants to make them. He, he was a practicing Orthodox Christian, which was not a popular thing to be in the Soviet Union. And a lot of his films are about people who believe in things and how that drives them. He's not necessarily trying to make everybody be religious, but he does believe in, in 
if people aren't driven by some sort of purpose, their lives will be aimless. And that kind of is the theme of his films here. Um, and he was very driven to make this film. Did you know that they, they filmed it, but because of the way that they'd um, exposed and looked after the film negative, that all the footage was destroyed and they had to go and reshoot it again? Oh my God, no, I didn't know that. Um, but Tarkovsky is such a kind of determined character that he went and did it. So did you also know that um, this they filmed this on location in Estonia um, and they used a disused chemical factory and the river that, that's featured in there was downstream from another chemical factory which was belching out uh, you know, polluting chemicals into the water and that's believed to be the cause for a number of the cast including Tarkovsky himself dying of cancer a few years after making this film. I didn't know that, no. But it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> so, what are your thoughts going into this film? It starts with a sort of this, um, the world that the ordinary people live in, in some sort of sepia-toned black and white, and it only goes into colour when they go in the zone. What, what, what did you make of the start of the film and the kind of the build-up? What sort of introduction did that give you to the world that you were watching? Um, yeah, it... It gave me a kind of sense of uncertainty, I think. Whether that was just something that I was consciously aware of because of the way it was like mm-hmm. initially shot, but it does add to the kind of degree of like unknown, mm-hmm. um, which I think is the point that Tarkovsky's really trying to hammer home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's really weird, right? Because I watched this film and it sort of, sort of knocked around in my head so much that a few days later I watched it again. I said, I want to watch this again and kind of get my head around what it is I've been watching. And it's really weird on the second viewing. I don't know if you thought this, you know, because what they do is they, they break in, they break through the um, the armed guards, like, uh, uh, that protecting the zone. They get inside to what looks like a railway depot. And there's a little kind of self-powered railway car, which they can use on the, the train tracks to take them into the zone. Do you remember that bit at the start? Yeah. And it goes from black and white to color. And then when they get in the middle of the zone, it's in color. And that obviously signifies something. And a lot of this is open to interpretation. One interpretation is that for the stalker, the only place he really feels alive is in the zone. So everything in the zone is in color. And everything associated with the zone is in color. Um, I swear to you, when I first watched it, I thought as the railway car goes towards the zone that it gradually goes into color. And then I watched it again, and it doesn't. It just go. It just suddenly it's in color, and I I can't tell you why it looked different to me the first time to the second. And the only thing explanation I've got for it is that it creates this kind of very dream, dreamy dream world. It kind of, kind of, it it kind of sets your brain on a different like wavelength. And I was watching it. Did you find that you were kind of that you felt like you were in a sort of like bit of a fluffy dream world when you were watching this film? Yeah, it felt like it wasn't quite. You know, you know that way. Like films try to be grounded. Mm-hmm. I got that kind of vibe from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely not meant to. It, it's definitely meant to to bring that dreamlike quality into it. And there's a lot of long takes where there will be some dialogue, or there'll be like a voiceover, and then there'll be a very very slow transition to the next take. Which, from what I read up on this, Tarkovsky wants to give you time to really soak in what you've just been told. Do you know what I mean? So I, I think I found myself, often when you watch a film, you start thinking about what the film's about afterwards. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But in this, I found myself thinking about what he was saying during the film, which is a slightly different experience. Yeah, it's hard to keep up because yeah. you're constantly thinking. Yeah. And did you notice sort of the overtones and imagery 
you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of overtones in imagery. Let me maybe ask the question another way. What sort of sort of themes and imagery did you pick up from watching this? Because it's it sort of it, it fires lots of images at you while while you're doing this. So the main one that I picked up on, I'm sure I missed a few, was that it was the sort of like human like human desire. Mm-hmm. It's it's probably one of the central themes and almost like a kind of desire for like faith mm-hmm. and believing in something. That was yeah. the, the ones yeah. that were kind of blatantly obvious, but the, I, I imagine there was hundreds that he was trying to get. Across. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, definitely the stalker is like, he's like he's pushing these two carrots. He's like saying, look, look at what was in this zone. Had and at the end, he has this long speech where he's really pissed off that he doesn't feel like they've had their minds expanded by what they've seen the way he was hoping it would. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So that stalker is, he's he's kind of almost, like you say, he it's not just what he believes. He wants them to kind of like find something in themselves from from, from what they've seen in the film. And it it's full of religious overtones, which um, when you watch it a few times and when you sort of read up a little bit, um, there are references to, there are some some of the speeches over the uh, in, in voiceover are actually from Orthodox Christian uh, spiritual texts, Christian texts. Um, he's described by his wife at one point as a, as a holy fool, which is a a character from Orthodox Christianity. He's like a provocateur. He's like it's his job to kind of say things. You know, you're like um, the jester in like the fool in like Shakespearean plays and stuff. He's like the only person who can kind of talk back to the king. Yeah, the holy fool in Orthodox Christianity is like that. He sort of he, he seems like a fool and an idiot, and and but he uses that status to kind of um, say things that might seem offensive or stupid, but it's meant to shock people into kind of thinking about you know what what people are trying to think about. So he used that. There's a lot of quite a lot of um, there's birds. There's a bird that fl- there's birds flies and then disappears. Like it's either a hawk or an eagle, and it flies again. And you're going, what did I just watch? There's a lot of like just syringes and other stuff just floating around in water that you see over and over again. And I think Tarkovsky's... People ask Tarkovsky a lot of questions. What does this mean? What does that mean? And I think like, um, you know the song American Pie? Yes. People have spent 50 years asking Don McLean what each line of the song means. And he says, I don't want to tell you everything about what it means, right? This is just a lot of imagery that I wanted to create so that when the people listen to it, they have an idea about what it means. And I think a lot of the imagery and a lot of the references in this is that he's he's he doesn't want to say right when I was writing this script and when I was putting that on on because he's got to literally put everything there right all of these filmmakers Scorsese everyone else it's all about what they, they everything in the frame is there on purpose he doesn't want to say and now I'm going to tell you that that means that and this means this and when I was talking about that I was thinking about this particular kind of story from the Bible what he's actually saying is these images mean something to me but I'm going to put them on the screen and you're going to watch it and I'm and I want it to conjure up a thought in you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. What sort of thoughts did this conjure up for you when you were watching it? Just the the kind of raw human desire for faith mainly, but just kind of things in general. It, it's desire ba- for something more or higher up is almost it's almost like a key thing to human nature. Like yeah. it, it make it asks questions of you know why are we here what do we want what do you believe in kind of thing yeah because the, the while while they're going through the zone you can't they actually see the place they need to go and they can't walk directly to it when one of the characters tries to walk towards it the, the guy says no if you do that you'll get killed you have to walk round 
and then they go through a tunnel and they're back where they came from and they don't understand it. And while all this weird stuff is happening, they talk about, the writer talks about what he writes and why he writes. The professor talks about why he studies and they argue with each other about stuff. And you obviously, um, to on your point about the desire for faith or to believe in something, it's like, it's, they're going to the room to get something, you know, to have a wish granted. But what kind of wish you want granted and why kind of says something about you. Yeah. Doesn't it? And 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 it's and at some at, at several points something they're going through thing called the meat mincer, that kind of tunnel where really weird, scary shit happens. It's like the stalker says, the zone is watching you. The zone is a set is kind of assessing you and what you're like and what you believe in and whether you believe in anything and whether there's any purpose to your life that is going to the zone's going to judge you based on what you do and when you go to the room and ask for something that it's like you're you're being observed you're being watched you're being judged kind of thing um it's what i would say about this film if i play this back to you, we talked about surreal films before we talked about sort of mind sort of mind fuck films before on this pod haven't we mate and I, th- let me know if i've got this right i think you you think a film needs to stand up in its own narrative, yeah? What's going on in the film from a scene one to scene 30, act one to act three kind of thing? If it doesn't, if you if you need to watch it four times to work out what's going on for those characters, the film's failed. But there can be all sorts of themes about what's really going on on top of that. But the, the story's got to stand up on its own kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Am I making sense? Yeah. And I think I think the the actual story of this film is quite simple, isn't it? There is a there is a, a, a strange place where weird things can happen. Two people want to go there and get because they believe they'll they're going to get something they dearly want out of it. There's a person whose job it is to take them there who has his own agenda. And when you get there, the the the, the, the zone isn't what you think it is. It reveals things about the people. It turns out the people might not be exactly what they look like and through their weird experiences and being taken through this kind of test, they learn a lot about themselves. And at the end of it, they find out that what you wish for and what you get might not be quite how it plays out. I think that story is relatively simple. Why do you think then that this film is so complex and difficult to work out when it's got on the face of it quite a simple story? I think the actual story of going into a zone in a room is quite simple. It's the themes and ideas along the way that can be quite challenging to mm-hmm. comprehend. I think that's in its kind of most basic black and white form what mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. I mean, the thing is, so much has been written about this film, whole books. You know, I, I read academic articles about this and everyone's got a different interpretation of the film. And I think that's why the film is the way it is, is that if you take 10 people, they will each give you a different interpretation of what this film is about or what this film meant to them. And I think that's what Tarkovsky intended. Um a great story I, I love about this this film is that when you make a film in the Soviet Union, which is kind of weird because there's so much censorship in the Soviet Union, and yet he made films that which couldn't be made in in the Western world because only with the the complete support of the Soviet government would you be able to get all of those army or all of those resources to make the movie. So you've got this weird thing where Tarkovsky was making films which were hard enough to make in the Soviet Union, but probably impossible to make anywhere else. But he had to submit his film to like this this government department, which would then advise on what the film whether the film was appropriate or not. And he got some feedback back, which just shows you what kind of character he is. And one of the things they said was was that this film is quite slow, and it needs to speed up a little bit so that people kind of you know find you know can understand what the story is about. 
and he wrote back to the government department. And this is in the Soviet Union, right? And it's not the 50s under Stalin, but he could still get fucked up if he said the wrong thing. And he said, no, I disagree. I think I need to make the film slower and more boring so that the people who don't actually want to see this film realise um, and walk out. So he's such a he's a really contrary character in in doing so with, in in a country with a government where that was not a good thing to be, but he really really wanted to kind of take people on a kind of a like a, a journey inside their heads watching this film, didn't he? The, 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 at the end of it though, did, I mean, did you enjoy this film? Did you like it? What did you make of it in the end? Um, it was it was okay. Um, I probably wouldn't watch it again, and I'll probably forget about it if you know what i mean mm. i did like the idea of it being thought provoking but mm-hmm. um it's not something i'd be like oh do you want to stick stalkers on do you know what i mean it's just not my type of film i would say yeah yeah i mean i i i have to say i i absolutely loved it i would not enjoy this being the only kind of film that i watch over and over again i mean if i if i look at the films i've watched since i watched the stalker since I watched Stalker, I've watched uh, uh, The Exorcist, Beverly Hills Cop, The Bourne Legacy, Spirited Away, The Hurt Locker, The Usual Suspects. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. In the midst of that, I've watched one very serious art film. And I think for me, that's about the right mix. Most of the time, I'm going to want to watch a film where somebody fucking robs a bank. Do you know what I mean? And has some hardball dialogue. Yeah. Or a sci-fi movie with a, a spaceship and an explosion. But I do think there's a place for this in the film watching for me, and I do want to watch more of Tarkovsky's films. Mainly, I just like the sort of altered state that I went into when I watched it. It's the same when I watched The Green Knight. I really like being kind of, and City of Lost Children, I really like being taken to this kind of very different kind of dreamy world now and again. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And now for the hidden gem feature about a film that is not as well known or as appreciated as it deserves to be. We aim to bring an overlooked and underrated film to your attention and say why this deserved to have more critical and commercial success than it got and why you should watch it or reevaluate it. This month we look at an early film by an independent filmmaker called Jeff Nichols with themes of the apocalypse which may or may not be the central character's delusions. The hidden gem for episode 41 is Take Shelter. So James, um... Now, we went to see a Jeff Nichols film together called Midnight Special. Um, the other film of, of Jeff Nichols that I've seen is called Mud. Have you seen Mud with Matthew McConaughey? Yeah, I've seen Mud. What do you think of that? Yeah, I liked it. I think it was the start of the McConaughey Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah. He played, It's a really interesting sort of, uh, what was the word? Not ambiguous, but very kind of um, enigmatic character he plays in that, where you don't know quite what to make of him. Um, this film, though... That, that had Michael Shannon in a supporting role, but this has got Michael Shannon in a leading role. And Jeff Nichols does a lot of films with Mike, Michael Shannon. I think Jeff Nichols makes different use of him than other directors do. Um, what what are your impressions of, of Michael Shannon generally and then how he's portrayed in Jeff Nichols' films? I think he can do a bit of everything. He's mm-hmm. he's funny. He's he's a bit of a meme at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, like he's, There's a film that he's in where he is the meme. Mm-hmm. And it's now been put on like everywhere. But he's obviously been in serious films. He can he's been General Zod, where he played like a very dark villain. Um, sorry, did I say he's been in General Zod? He's played General Zod in Man of Steel and yep. been a dark villain. He's been uh, you know, the kind of goofy KKK member in um, 
Bad Boys 2, so he does a bit of everything. But in Jeff Nichols' films, it feels like he he's a bit more serious, isn't he? Yeah, he's a bit more serious, and he, he's a bit more of an everyman in Jeff Nichols' films, isn't he? Um, he's played a lot more regular guy characters than in in Jeff Nichols films than in uh, in this because in this while he is having visions of the apocalypse and may or may not be suffering from a serious mental illness he's a regular guy with a job and a family do you know what I mean and you're and you're meant to be watching this from the purpose of this inc- rather weird and strange stuff is happening to like a regular person and in Midnight Special, he he he's he's just the dad, you know. He's he's a dad wrestling with incredibly weird stuff that's happening to his son. Whereas he seems to play sort of more big films. Sort of like to make use of him as a villain, or you know, he plays he played that hitman in in the Iceman or whatever he was called. I feel like Jeff Nichols brings out sort of uh, wants him to play like ordinary ordinary bloke because because he's got such a character face and because he's 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 so uh, he's so sort of. Uh, sort of individual in the way he looks. I think he he takes Michael Shannon and its starting point is this is a, an interesting per, or ordinary person to which weird things are happening kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so yeah, storyline is uh, Michael Shannon's main character. He is a uh, like a not construction worker, but he works in sort of like he's. He, he, Digging and building and sort of major sort of good you know major sort of dam building project type things. Uh, he's got a normal house, normal life, a uh, wife and a daughter. The daughter's deaf and thanks to the decent health insurance he's got with his job, they may be able to get her a cochlear implant, which is going to enable her to to hear. She so get a bit of their like normal family life, but he starts to have these bad dreams um, of like strange storms and phenomena which seem to be bringing about some sort of end of the world and he starts to feel like he needs to prepare for this like and and the shelter in the tile is actually he starts to build out the storm shelter in his back garden because he think he's he's genuinely convinced that the that the apocalypse is coming how what did you feel about that setup and how it was portrayed um yeah it was okay it felt a little bit samey i thought it was going to go down the route of fucking knowing or mm. the number twenty three, but it didn't. Um, it was it was I, much more kind of. Uh, it tried to leave things a bit more open than that, didn't it? Yeah, I think other than Mud, he he tends to do films that I don't really get on board with. Jeff Nichols, I didn't like Midnight Special one bit, and I wasn't the biggest fan of of this. Mm-hmm. I think he did Mud quite well because it wasn't like this weird sci fi thing. It was. Mm-hmm. It was. Just kind of about uh, this kind of guy that you kind of meet these two young guys, and it was it felt a little bit more authentic than some of his more kind of sci-fi fantasy, you know, whatnot. Yeah, not to say that I hated it, but the same as Midnight Special, I just thought, meh. I, I like this better than Midnight Special, and that's probably because I ended up I ended up feeling very disappointed by Midnight Special because for about two thirds of that film, I really loved it. But the thing about Midnight Special is that there's there's two things you find out in Midnight Special. Is one is what's going on in the story, and two, as a result of that, is what kind of film are you watching? Are you watching a psychological thriller about people like chasing each other? Are you watching a horror movie? You're watching a sci-fi. What 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 kind of film are you watching? And you got this revelation about two thirds in, and all the air kind of went out of the story, and it just went, oh, that's what's happening, and it was all a bit. Oh, okay. Is that it? Yeah, it went very Tomorrowland. Yeah, out of fucking nowhere. Yeah, um, yeah, and it, 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 and I don't, I don't think he made that work. This is, 
I think he handles the what is going on a lot better in this because I think the idea is that he does the whole thing from the point of view of the central character. And you can either interpret this film as this guy is suffering from paranoid delusions about the end of the world and what's going to happen to him, what's going to happen to his family. Or you can interpret it as in other ways as in actually maybe a maybe a future you know, storm apocalypse is coming and people would think that the person who had visions of that was mad just wait until he gets proved right kind of thing you know um i i, I agree with you mud is the film of his i like best but i, I did like some of the stuff it, it did bring some small details to life i like the bit where he has that really the really bad really effective like first bad dream where he has that like terrifying sort of nightmare about what's happening and then at breakfast the next morning, he's in a really shit mood with his family and he can't really say why. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the, 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 there are often very nice human touches in, in his films. Yeah. And that that's something that you could definitely see. Like, if that happened to you and, you know, you got asked, oh, what's wrong with you? Like, oh, no, it's fine, it's fine, leave it, nothing. I'm, I just woke up on the wrong side of the bed kind of thing. That's a definite nice yeah. touch. To yeah. try and add a bit of kind of authenticity and some, like, kind of realism to it. Yeah, yeah. Which I think he can do very well, but that again, that's not a full film for me. That's not the full... Yeah, I, I, I know what you mean. You're, you're either on board with where he takes the story or you're not. And if you're not, then it's kind of... It's like a cardboard box that doesn't mean so properly. It just falls down. However, the 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 real life characterizations, his relationship with his daughter and Jessica Chastain as his wife, although that was really nicely painted, I mean, for you know, the, I thought the characters were very you know relatable. Shea Wiggum is his best friend and all that. I mean, for example, when his when his wife comes home to find him digging up the garden to make a storm shelter, as she's parking up the driveway, I remember thinking, oh god, she's going to shit a brick. So it did made it had made me invest in the characters. Do you know what I mean? I mean, what would your partner's reaction be if she came came home to find you building a storm shelter on your property? Um, probably a what the fuck, but again, like she's used to me doing all the DIY around the house, so she'd probably go, oh, "He's just he's just building something." She'd probably ask, "What's it for?" <laughs> yeah, I think if if my if my missus came home to see me doing that, that storm shelter would need to be nearly finished because that would be my my new home. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I know. I also like the bit where his his partner can, you know, his wife can see that he's struggling, and she's beside herself with worry about him. And oh God, what if you lose your job? What if you know? Because in in, in the the world they live in, it's it's fine if 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 your life stays on an evil key, even keel. It's really not fine if it doesn't. You know, they could really drop off a cliff. And her worry about him makes him feel worse, and doesn't feel like he can talk about it. I thought that was built up really well. Um, the, 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 I don't think we can talk about this without spoilers. So let's just talk about the spoilers. The story of this film, if you, if you haven't seen the film, I would pause now, go and watch it. I do think it is worth watching, even if you don't come down on it as, as a fan. But the, the story of this film is that he has these increasingly violent and terrifying visions of the world ending. So he starts to build a, a, a shelter so that if anything happens, he can protect his family. And you don't know if his family needs protecting from him and maybe they should go in the shelter or he should lock himself in the shelter and not hurt anybody or yeah. or maybe he really is is right and there's going to be... And there's a bit where a storm happens and they go and stay in the shelter because they might actually need to and you think, all oh, right, is he being proved right? And that's a bit of a false alarm. And big spoiler, at the end, he's agreed that, yeah, you need some medication, you need some psychiatric treatment, you are having visions of the apocalypse and, and that is, you know, and your mum was a schizophrenic and, and this... You know, 
please get treatment for the sake of you and your family. And then at the end, his family can see a huge storm coming and it looks exactly like his dreams. And it's like a tsunami starts to rise up from the sea and the huge storm and the birds fly in the strange formation and the clouds gather into giant cyclones and the daughter can see it and he can see it. And suddenly he feels like, oh, it's not just my imagination. Everyone else can see it. And the film ends at that point. And you can either interpret, you can interpret that in a couple of ways. And I think the two main ways to interpret it are he was right and there is a there's this destructive storm coming and now his, he and his family have to do something about it together. Or in his head, he's still having dreams and visions of the apocalypse, but because he and his family are dealing with it together, he feels like they're on his side. So he's not, you know, his wife's not going to stab him. He's not going to get attacked by anybody. They're going to deal with it together. I think those are the two main ways to interpret it. I think a religious person might interpret it in, a, in another way. But how did you interpret that ending? Um, yeah, I didn't get the kind of religious side of it. Um, it's just this is happening in the South of America where evangelical people believe that that's how the world's going to end. Yeah, like kind a rapture thing. kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, I, that wasn't the vibe for me. I think it was it was more kind of like a psychological ending for me mm-hmm. as opposed to like a, yeah. I don't know, it's hard to kind of put my finger on it. Um, yeah. I, I think it was trying to end it on like a mystery... And like, oh, he was kind of right. It's it's meant to be open ended, isn't it? Or was he right, or is he just seeing things and it's mm-hmm. his madness? Yeah, I didn't get a rapture vibe from it. I think it was pretty pretty straightforward. It wasn't like a, I don't know. It wasn't like a pure, oh, what if kind of thing. I think it was either he's made it up or he hasn't. <laughs> yeah, I think if they'd gone full knowing and the world really is ending, I think that would have been terribly cheesy. And it's good they didn't go down that road. No. I think it was good to because I I I, put, I like the film better than you for sure, and I think they did a very good job of like portraying the world from Michael Shannon's point of view. So you kind of say, look, that's he's seeing this like he's been seeing everything else. Um, what that means is kind of open to interpretation, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I liked it. I quite like this. I think it's. I think Jeff Nichols is a, is an interesting filmmaker. Mud is still his best film. I feel like he's got something more in him uh, one of these days. I, I feel like I, I want to keep an eye on his films. And one, one of these days, he's gonna I'm going to read the synopsis of his next film and go, oh, yeah, I bet, I bet he's totally cracked at this time kind of thing. I think you were perhaps less sold on him, though. Yeah, I don't know. It just can't, it, it didn't feel as fresh as it could have been for a apocalyptic apocalyptic psychological film mm-hmm. as it potentially could have been and that's a hard thing to do you know try and make a film that is about the end of the world that isn't mm-hmm. doesn't fall into the same kind of tropes as all the other ones that's right yeah. yeah yeah because if the question is the, the question this film poses is is the world ending or is he or is he losing his mind the problem is if you fully answer that question one way or the other all the tension goes out of the film doesn't it yeah but anyway, look, this this is a hidden gem because it didn't make a lot of money and it hasn't been been seen by a lot of lot of people. Um, while we haven't had a complete consensus on how much we like it, I like it better than James. We do think it's an interesting film that uh, that's worth giving it a look and see what you make of it. And we'd be interested to hear what you think.
Now for the one that got away, where we dig deeper into cinematic history for stories of potentially great films that top directors tried and failed to bring to the screen. We look at what happened, why it didn't work out, and what it might have been like if they'd been able to realise their vision. This month we look at the 40 years plus efforts of a legendary director to make the film that might have been his masterpiece of surrealist nightmares. The one that got away for episode 41 is David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket. Now, the, the story of this film stretches out over, literally over decades. It's told very well in the book, The Greatest Sci-Fi Movies Never Made by David Hughes, but there are many articles about this you can read online. Uh, there, is, uh, his, there is a link to his script online, so you can actually read the script from beginning to end. Um, so there's a lot about this. This is one of the most famous ones that got away. And we've got a bit of a loose apocalyptic theme here. And, and, and because we have categories, the films have to fit this category. So a classic that we haven't seen... I think we've seen a lot of the big end of the world films. Do you know what I mean? So we watch Stalker, even though that might not be about the apocalypse. Same with this, but it's got strong apocalyptic themes. Um, James, David Lynch, what's your background with him? Uh, I've not watched much of his stuff. I know he's very much into surrealism, mm -hmm. um, but he also did Dune, which is somewhat odd. But he's, yeah, he's, a, he's an odd man, odd director. Yeah, he's one of those funny people where people who've met him, he comes across as the most normal sort of person in the world, but every film he makes is really fucking strange. Yeah, it's mental. So people wonder what you know what, what's going on in that crazy little head of yours. Um, I mean, for me, I mean, he he had some big pop culture moments because Dune was a big event when it came out. It didn't work, but I mean, there was lots of talk about Dune. It was full of stars. Um, I used to do Panini sticker books back then of like, you know, the you know the football sticker books and the cricket and all that sort of thing. And I got a, a Dune sticker book. So I was actually following this film quite closely and like, here's Sting in his metal pants. What the fuck is going on with this? So David Lynch was very high profile for a little while. Um, obviously, The Elephant Man was quite a big film in the, in, in the early 80s and he's got well known for that. That's kind of a, a big part of pop culture. The whole Elephant Man thing is like a... Uh, it's a well-known story which which resonates in culture, and he, he directed that as well. And when, in, when I was a kid, he was kind of... A, Wild at Heart was this film that got watched a lot, like like came out like 1990, and it, it was a film that kind of got, you know, people were passing it around here, but stick Wild at Heart on, it's got, you know, here's the, here's the sex scene with Nick Cage and Laura Dern, here's where, uh, here's where someone gets shot, and their skull and spine fly through the air, and it was kind of one of those films where you watch for the the shocking bits but actually if you sit down and watch it from beginning to end there's this really strange sensibility um nick cage appears to be playing elvis um and of course blue velvet which is really fucking hardcore so i wouldn't say i was a devoted fan or anything but he but he did he did loom quite large back then and looming large of a sort largest of all was twin peaks which was a big tv show i mean i'm not sure if you've seen any of twin peaks mate uh, no, I know it was a big, huge phenomenon. Yeah, and mad and surreal as it is, it's kind of weird that that film comes out in 1990 because nothing, there was nothing like it before it came out. All the big TV shows were things like, uh, you know, Hill Street Blues or you know, Dynasty. They were big mass TV shows, and even if they were of high quality, they were still very standard type TV. And everything that came after it in the TV world was still pretty normal. Even something like. Um, the X-Files, which is like weird and scary, it's still, in terms of style, it's pretty standard. Here's two people investigating some weird stuff. They find out that there's some weird stuff going on and see you at the next episode. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And Twin Peaks was this, everyone watched it. It was really popular, but there was nothing like it afterwards. Do you know what I mean? 
I feel like it would sit a lot more in modern TV now. You know, in this modern world of TV on streaming, Twin Peaks fits right in. But back then it was like, wow, I don't believe this. And yet everybody watched it. It was, oh, you're watching Twin Peaks tonight. You know what's going on. And I didn't see all of it, but I knew enough about Twin Peaks to know what was going on. Um, so tell me what you found out about Ronnie Rocket when we, when we decided we were going to do this for the pub. I took one look at the idea for the plot and thought, no, fuck that, and went back about my day because it sounded fucking bizarre and stupid and something I would hate. <laughs> so, so tell me about it and tell me why you would hate it. So the plot follows a detective. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's trying to find the second dimension. Am I on the right path here? Yeah. Um, I I think there's at least two or three scripts and interpretations of the David Lynch story. So what you're describing is one of the versions of Ronnie Rocket I've heard. So yeah, please crack on. So the one I read said that there's a detective whose ability on to stand on one leg is his one asset in his quest. The only thing standing in his way is the donut men. And a group stalks the detective and poses their electric wielding power as a threat. There is a rock star who needs to be plugged into an electrical supply so we can garner power to create powerful music with occasional destruction. Yeah, I mean, what what what's happened is is that the, the the different summaries of the script have come out with with different interpretations because the whole thing is completely weird. And I think that the script is available to read online. Um, I don't think it will it will help um, solve the mystery that much of what this film is about. Because it is absolutely bonkers, and people have taken different details and different ideas from it. The version I think I, th- I think it's interesting for me to read out the summary I got of the film because I think that the t- we we've read summaries by two different people who are both reading the same source, but have come up with quite different versions. So the summary I got is that it's set in a dystopian urban wasteland, which is either an apocalyptic future for our world or it's a parallel universe that's going through the apocalypse. Anyway. There's a mysterious, powerful antagonist who rules over the world and has the power to deliver a kind of electrical storm. Now, that electrical storm provides power, but because he's because he controls it, he can destroy whole cities if he wants, so everyone's frightened of him, yeah? He has truck, truckloads of henchmen in long black coats called the Donut Men. That's one thing that, you know, that's common to the two summaries. The eponymous hero, Ronnie Rocket, is a diminutive, malformed hairless guy he's a a little person basically he's been surgically altered against his will you know he's not you know just a small person he's a small person who then done you know he's like um i wonder if rocket raccoon is called rocket raccoon in some sort of tribute to this because he's been experimented and turned into like given powers by the experiments that they've done on him he's got um uh, this big shock of red hair and he can conduct electricity and in fact in order to survive he needs to be regularly plugged into the mains if he doesn't he'll die however when you do plug him into the mains um, he can actually generate power of his own he can only communicate in strange unintelligible sounds but if you plug those unintelligible sounds into an amp um, it actually makes this kind of weird but terrifying music, which is why a band decides they want him to be in their band. This is where the rock star story comes from your version. Um, but it's slowly killing him because there's basically all the electricity is, uh, there's like, an, like uh, the, the, the electricity is polluted and it, that's why the world is an apocalypse and that's why it's killing Ronnie. 
And then this, the, the detective from your story, he realizes that Ronnie Sounds are attempts to communicate and which could hold the key to defeating the evil power controlling this world. So they plug Ronnie into clean power and he starts to be able to fight um, fight back. He makes the donut men spontaneously combust just by standing on one leg. I mean, it's not it's not any less mental than the one you found, but I think it's very interesting that two people read the same script and came up with quite different synopsis. Um, but you're not on board with this, are you? You, you wouldn't want to see the film they make. No, of this. I can fuck off. The the interesting thing of this is that it's it's let's not spend too long on this because it's really really hard to take a David Lynch idea on paper and really decide what you think it would be like on film because all his scripts are like this, all his ideas are like this. And then when he pulls it together, you watch it and you go, ah. Because Mulholland Drive is a really, really mad film. Not as mad as this, to be fair. And I think the reason this film didn't get made is because it is too mad. But Mulholland Drive is a really mad film. But when you actually put the scenes together, the way David Lynch watches it, um, makes it, you watch it and you go, oh, right, it's about her meeting her and they fall out and then someone tries to kill her. And you go, oh, right. Do you know what I mean? He has this really... It, whatever's going in his head is so weird, but actually when he puts the film together and shows the scenes in order that he wants them to show, there is a story. But you can't discern a story from this. From this. Um, but, I mean, I, I think the story of it is, is that he tried to get it made straight after his first film, Eraserhead. Um, he went to American Zoetrope, uh, Francis Coppola's company, the studio. But he happened to do so just when Francis Coppola's studio was starting to get into trouble, um, uh, basically to pay for Apocalypse Now. So there was no money being spent on other films. And then after that was done, there were a couple of other Coppola films which flopped. So there was no money for these other films. Uh, Ronnie Rocket didn't happen. He then tried again. It didn't happen. He thought if he did Dune and it was a big hit, that would give him the money to make the film he wants to make. But Dune wasn't a big hit goes round and round in circles. None of his films are ever quite a big enough hit to um, to give him the chance to make this film. And Twin Peaks was probably the difference because he um, that was a really big hit. He got a three-picture deal and he said, well, one of the films I want to make is Ronnie Rocket. And I said, okay, but before you do that, we want you to do a Twin Peaks movie because that's why you've got this deal, right? That's why we like you. It's because Twin Peaks is popular. So he did a Twin Peaks movie which flopped. A lot of people like that film now, but it didn't do very well when it first came out. So Lynch went, well, I, I, he didn't get the money to make this movie. And I think he's gone off the idea because even David Lynch looked at this as being a little bit too much. Um, the only point of interest in, in it is that um, he wanted to film this in Northern English cities because he wanted to capture that, you know, the polluted, you know, coal-stained, like... Uh, that that world he wanted to show people living in. I think the idea of like this polluted world where ordinary people are being controlled by uh, an outside environment that was killing them. I think he was genuinely interested in that. Um, in, in the end though, not only could he not make this mad story of his work, he, he did, he went back in the nineties and location scouted Northern English cities and realized they'd all cleaned up too much and he wouldn't be able to film there. Um, so there's one or two points of interest in this, but it's, you know, it, it's it's most notable thing that being the film that, that was so mad, even David Lynch couldn't make it. Yeah, it was, it was just a bonkers idea that I knew if they'd made this film and you said, let's watch this with a pod, I wouldn't have liked before I'd even started. I know that's not good to do to write off a film, but in the same breath, come on, man, fuck off. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think because I mean, David Lynch eventually started saying he'd, he'd kind of lost, you know, he couldn't find the thread of this film, and I think what's happened is he's got these really crazy ideas, and if he was going to make it work, he would have had to kind of, he would have had to try and kind of make it make a bit more sense, at which point it's not the, he's obviously had some really wild image in his head that he'd love to film and he's not quite managed to make it kind of hang together as a story and 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 that's what we've got here so it's 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 a fascinating idea and maybe there are some lynch fans who would love to have seen this because they're really on board with his his craziness but i I think this was a step too far for him and i think even he knew that do you know what i mean yeah i get you We close the features episode with the remake Hate Watch. This is where we shine a light on the lack of originality in the Hollywood boardroom and their obsession with remaking, rebooting, reimagining, or just plain recycling older films. Quite often this is our chance to let off steam and rant at a terrible and unworthy remake, which sullies the reputation of an old classic. But every now and again the new film holds up under our ruthless examination and emerges from the Hate Watch with some credit. Later on we will also discuss a remake restoration. Once we've finished asking if a remake was unnecessary and should be removed, we will suggest a remake that should happen because it needs to be done right this time. This month we look at how Hollywood tried to recycle a story that had already been adapted twice and inspired various other much better films, just to make another dumb blockbuster. The remake hate watch for episode 41 is I Am Legend. So James, your background with I Am Legend, when did you first see this film? Uh, I didn't see when it came out because I think it was a 12 minimum, maybe a 15. I think it was a 15 and you would have been like 11, 11 years old when it 11, came out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think I watched it when it was on Sky Movies in about 2010 when I was about 40, 13, 14, let's say. Okay, so still round about the era that it came out, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And what's what's your knowledge of the previous uh, versions of this? I had no idea. I didn't realize this This was a remake hate watch, actually, until you said we were doing this for the pod. I was like, oh, really? Yeah, um, I, I thought it was like its its own kind of entity, its own thing. I think that's partly because of the different names that it goes by. Um, yeah. This is based on a book by Richard Matheson. Richard Matheson, which we've talked about on this pod before, because uh, the episode six hidden gem is Stir of Echoes. Uh, Stir of Echoes is a really good sort of supernatural ghost slash communing with with like spirits type story which had the uh, misfortune to be released uh, about a week after The Sixth Sense in 1999. And despite being, in my humble opinion, a better film than that, not that there's anything wrong with Sixth Sense, it just got swept away because people were going to watch one such film and they went to see the other one kind of thing. Um, Stephen King is a big fan of Richard Matheson, among others, because he kind of set a template for a kind of horror and suspense type fiction that you know, a lot of writers, including King, Again, from his was writing in the 50s and 60s predominantly. And Richard Matheson's short story was the basis for Steven Spielberg's early film, Duel. So this is Richard Matheson. He's one of these people who comes up with great ideas for, you know, like, you know, uh, stories. Uh, uh, you know, and then his imagination kind of creates great, great ones. The previous versions of I Am Legend uh, were released under different titles. In 1964, a kind of B-movie version of it came out called Last Man on Earth, which isn't great, but it's relatively close to the, the story of the film of the book. And then in 1971, there was The Omega Man with Charlton Heston, which um, departs from the original story in a number of ways, but was a, a big studio version, which, which covers the uh, the original uh, 
uh, subject matter, the Charlton Heston way. Each version is different from the, the book. I mean, the, the last version, the Omega Man, is probably the best one filmed, and it retains the bit that you might not have been aware of from the uh, from the film you've watched, mate, is that originally the 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 night creatures that um, the main character is fending off, they're actually meant to be a lot more intelligent than this. Yeah. Uh, they actually speak and, and know who he is. They give him a name. There are two kinds of creatures, and they're kind of vampires. Um, but in the original, there's ones that have been infected and are essentially kind of crazed killers that need to be put down. But there are also people who are infected vampires who, you know, they're still living off, you know, they're still vampires. You've still got to worry about them. But they're a lot more intelligent and have a, a, a lot more kind of going for them as a society. And the main character doesn't differentiate them and is just wiping them all out. And he's actually... You know, vampires or Dracula are like a scare story to, to, that scare children at night. Well, the legend, the I am legend of the story, the vampire, you know, families, he is their legend. He is the thing that terrifies them. He's the he's the story they tell their kids at night. So that's what's interesting about the original book. Um, you don't get that in this film. Tell me, tell me what this film's about. So it's, it's filmed in 2007, and I think it's like five years in the future, so 2012, I Something think. Something like that, yeah. And someone has found the cure for cancer and given it to everyone's taken it as a vaccine and it's everyone thinks it's brilliant but it goes wrong and it uh, infects the population wipes out you know 99.9 percent .9 of the globe turns them into these um these night creatures that we've kind of described uh, described sorry um and it's yeah, it follows Will Smith's character, who's like a doctor slash physicist who's lost his family. It's just him and uh, his dog trying to survive. He's, you know, very meticulous. He has boarded his windows and doors up. He doesn't go out too late. He's still trying to kind of analyse these night creatures, trying to find a cure. Mm -hmm. um, he doesn't seem to think that he's really getting anywhere. And he's trying to, you know, scavenge. He's sort of losing his mind. He sort he sort of has like conversations with like uh, uh, Taylor Dump Taylor's dummies and stuff, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, like mannequins and that. He's trying to keep himself sane by watching old news clippings and listening to music and you know exercising and still going out with his dog and like hitting golf balls. But at the end of the day, he's living in uh, apocalypse post apocalypse um, New York. Mm -hmm. um, that's the kind of start of the film uh, or the kind of general context. The film's actual kind of plot. He is trying to. Um, capture uh, a night creature that he can test on, try and find the cure. Mm -hmm. And he captures a female and he starts testing. He figures out that the cure is in his blood and by, he figures this out by administering some of his blood, thinking, well, why have I survived this and not been you know, turned into a night creature? And he thinks, well, maybe I've got the cure in my DNA. Mm -hmm. Gives it to this night creature and slowly but surely she starts to turn from a night creature back to being a human in the midst of all this a woman and i i don't know i can't remember if it's her son her son sorry or a young child i wondered if it was her son but i think it's just someone that she's taken to protecting along the way the way these yeah. kind of families form up in in all of these apocalyptic stories right she's someone needed to look after this kid and it falls to her she's been listening to his radio broadcasts and comes to new york throws a bit of a spanner in the works um, saying that there's a, a sanctuary like in upstate New York um, mm -hmm. and for him to come here, but he's obsessed with his cure. He has, something happens where he gets trapped 
by mm-hmm. the the night creatures. They've set a kind of a booby trap for him. Mm-hmm. His dog gets infected. Spoiler: He has to kill his dog before it turns into a night creature dog thing. Mm-hmm. And the night creatures figure out where he lives. So he's yeah. The night creatures seem to actually have a bit more intelligence than he at first thought, right? Yeah. Including caring about the creature that he's captured. And they wait till night time to figure out where he lives. They find where he lives, start attacking his house when the sun goes away. And at the end, he's in his lab. He's shut the woman and the the wee boy in like a kind of coal storage thing. Mm -hmm. And he thinks, how do I get out of this situation? How do I still manage to start the cure? So he takes a grenade, runs into the group of zombies and blows himself up so that his blood gets put onto the infected and they slowly start to change and slowly but surely that cure will spread throughout um, throughout all these night creatures. Um, and that is pretty much I Am Legend. I don't think I've missed much there. No. Did you know there was an alternative le- ending? I did know there was an alternative ending and I, I enjoyed this film when it came out at the time. I didn't hate it. Um, and thought the ending was quite good. And then I saw the alternative ending and thought, yes, that was much better. So the alternative ending is, instead of taking a grenade, he just slowly... The night creatures are here to get the, the, the female back. So he pushes her body out into the group of the night creatures and they take her away. Mm-hmm. And that way the cure will be spread. I'm not entirely sure how this premise is meant to work. Mm-hmm. Because if you're to get the cure from someone else's blood, you'll have to kill them. Mm-hmm. so basically they're just going to keep killing each other so I guess it's a case of killing all of these night creatures yeah it, it's, as soon it's, as you... it's, yeah. The, the alternative ending is a little bit more open ended about what happens next isn't I it? mean even the original ending is a bit more open ended because if your blood is meant to turn the night creatures back to normal you're just going to get attacked by other night creatures and so on and so forth so mm-hmm. it's just going to carry on and carry on and carry on so I guess it's a case of the survivors just yeah waiting for all of them to die um in the original ending, the 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 woman and the boy go back to their sanctuary upstate, and it's sort of like they kind of did all of that for nothing, but they know that the cures, yeah, been administered. And yeah, the, the, yeah, the yeah. There's 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 like a, a glimmer of hope. Maybe they can like capture that. You know, I can't remember if the in the alternative ending, Will Smith also travels with them. Yeah, to the he, he 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 drives north, and you don't see whether they get to the sanctuary or not. In the theatrical ending, you see them the the woman and the kid arrive at the sanctuary. I can't remember in the original ending whether he whether she gives him like she's got a vial of his blood or anything, and there's a hope that they can use that they can create their own cure. I don't I don't know. It's 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 left a bit open anyway. I mean, the stuff I liked about this, I did like Will Smith on his own in the city. I, I thought he and the dog together and some of the stuff he did to get through each day, I thought that was quite nicely done. Yeah, that was good. Um, here are the things I didn't like about this film. The the fact that the whole thing is because of a vaccine going wrong. I'm so fucking over vaccine conspiracies and I'm so fucking over dimwits in popular culture saying that scientists coming up with vaccines is going to bring about the end of the world fuck off come up with a storyline that isn't going to make it harder for us to cure people of fucking nasty diseases you fucking ignorant cunts i don't know why it is that the the film industry thinks that every time something bad happens it's because a scientist tried to discover something as opposed to because of a ceo or a fucking military dictator trying to do something with the invention but that's just me and my hobby horse um, yeah, I don't know if it was done intentionally. And it's just, a, it's just, thought, a, it's just such a lazy maybe, trope, isn't may, it? Maybe we shouldn't have done it about vaccines because that was, you know, when the whole do autism's cause vaccine 
Yeah. Uh, do I autism so- cause vaccines? Do vaccines cause autism? Yeah. The kind of trend was yeah. starting. Yeah, it's fucking frustrating that this kind of stupidity gets like pervade over and over again. The CGI is shit. The CGI is terrible. That that is the one thing I really didn't like about this film is how how just it just looked sloppy. It looked like when you see a film and it's like it's in post and they're trying to kind of get the gist of the scene and they've not quite finished the CGI yet. That's the kind of the look that the night creatures have. And I don't think in 2007 they had the sophistication of CGI to do realistic faces and, you know, ears and noses and facial features. Do you know what I mean? Certainly not on the budget. I mean, Avatar was only two years away from this. Yeah. yeah and that is a gorgeous true. film. Yeah, that's true. 2009, yeah, but, that... but I think they pissed all the money away on getting uh, Will Smith in the film, which well, is that, fair enough. That's the thing, that originally they weren't going to CGI the creatures. That's what the that's what the user said in the, the through the listener message, is actually they set they started out with people and makeup, and then they decided, oh no, that's not going to look right, let's do CGI instead. I'd see if they spent a fraction of the money on that instead of shit CGI. They could have been nominated for a, an Academy Award for Best Makeup. There was a real opportunity there. Yeah. I've seen the video and it looks fine. It looks all right. And the, the, the Charlton Heston version of this in 1971, they just used collared contact lenses and, and, and face makeup, right? And it was fine. You don't look at that going, oh, I don't like the way these zombies look. It's like, it's fucking fine. I don't like the way they just turned them into fast zombies because in the original story, they have more intelligence and that's part of the, the battle between him and those characters. It's like It's almost like a battle for who's going to be the dominant species on Earth now. And it's just a more interesting discussion. Um, I think the guy who directed this, Francis Lawrence, is a very average director and it needed a better director to make it all work. Did he not do Hunger Games? One of them, I think, yeah. Yeah, that seems like his limit. Um, the real... The real pro- I mean, cause, but, 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 but mainly the real problem is because they just make them into like running scary CGI zombies, all the stuff they then try and do about, oh, these creatures are more intelligent than you think. Oh, these creatures care about one of their own being captured. They don't, because they're just running, scaring, running, scaring fast night zombies. It's not as easy to explore any of the themes of the story. So it's always going to be a bit limited in how it pans out. The real flaw in this film is Akiva Goldsman, who wrote the script. Now, Akiva Goldsman um, should be banned from working on sci-fi projects. I know he's won an Oscar for writing Beautiful Mind, but here is his track record in writing sci-fi and genre films. These are the scripts he's written in like sci-fi and action genre. You ready? Apart from I Am Legend, Batman Forever. Fuck off. Batman and Robin. Fuck off. Lost in Space. Oh, Jesus. I, Robot. The Da Vinci Code. Angels and Demons, one of the Divergent sequels, The Fifth Wave, which is a really shit sci-fi film, one of the Ring sequels, a Transformers sequel, and just to top it off, he is responsible for the script of the Dark Tower film. Oh dear. Don't, if you want a film like this to be good, do not let Akiva Goldsman write the script. That is the lesson. Oh. But like I said, there is some good stuff in this film. The, the em- empty New York with Will Smith kind of l- trying to live in it. That That's actually worth the watch. I would say that compared to a lot of other remakes, there's about 40 minutes of this film where you could just watch that and go, yeah, that is actually pretty good. So how would you remake it then? Because I've got an idea like, of how I would do it. Um, okay, well, we've we've got another redo for Mad Max Beyond Thunder, but let's do a quick redo recommendation on yeah, this. Yeah, this will take two minutes. So yeah. no, 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 no CGI. 
no CGI. So how I would do it was I would I would make it a lot quicker. I would make it that they they figure out the cure a lot earlier on. So I'd make the film around two hours and twenty minutes, and I'd say about fifty minutes, and they figure out that the blood mm-hmm. is the cure. And the rest of the film, they try and come up with a way to cure everyone and bring them back, mm-hmm. as opposed to the kind of ambiguous Will Smith blows him up or Will Smith gives the female vampire back, and that's the ending. Maybe it goes to a case of how do we administer this cure all at once so they all change all at once as opposed to one at a time and then murdering that person. The kind of ambiguity there. That's how I would do it. No CGI and then have a bit of a clearer ending and you're sorted. The only thing I'd add to that is I think you need to bring back the bit from the original book where there are two kinds of infected. One are the scary running around homicidal ones that you need to just fucking kill, right? Yep. And the others are people who are infected, but are they still have in, you know thoughts, intelligence, love, children, they care about each other and all of that sort of thing. Because they're the ones you'd want to cure, A, right? And secondly, because they have thoughts and minds and, and motivations of their own, they have not taken kindly to um, Will Smith's character killing them. And they are in conflict with him, which then complicates all of your efforts to administer a cure and creates an ethical question that says, well, who's to say that they should all just be wiped out? Because I think all of the battle scenes should be with people, should include that element of, well, these people don't want to cooperate because he's been fucking murdering them. Yeah. And I think you've got more of a story. Because it's, totally. it's, it's, in, it's in the Charlton Heston version. It's quite interesting. And I think updating it to... Um, to use Will Smith's undoubted acting skills and you know mo- you know modern special effects minus the shit CGI, I think would have justified making the movie. But yeah, I agree with you. Everything you said plus give the give the creatures a brain. Sorted. There you go. Fixed it. Should have come to us Hollywood instead of Akiva Goldsman. Remember that next time. Yeah, you should have come to eleven-year-old me, and I would have fixed your film for you. Absolutely. Our actual re- remake restoration that, that we want to do for this uh, is uh, a, a, a film that I think most people listening to this will have seen is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, the 1985 third installment in the Mad Max, uh, sort of uh, then a trilogy, which, but which became four films and, and now more since uh, George Miller's gone back to the series. Um, you've seen Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, right? Uh, yes, a long time ago. Have you seen one and two? I've, yes, I think I've seen them all. Yeah, so w- one is really good. It's low budget. George Miller, you know, edited it in his bedroom. Um, obviously, the right thing to do is do what he then did with Mad Max 2, which is to more fully realise the world. It's still lower budget, but it's like, here is the apocalypse. Here are these terrifying sort of like bandits. Here is Max on his own needing some gasoline. Here is a, a place that has oil that is under attack from the, you know, the, the, the cannibal the cannibal hordes. One of the best action films of the 80s. Fucking great stuff. In 2015, we went to see Mad Max Free Road together. That's still one of my favourite action sort of chase type films of all time. It's an absolutely belting film. But it's weird that Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, which was meant to capitalise on the success of Mad Max 2, right? Where the Americans went, oh, we like this Mad Max stuff. Come on then. Here's more money. Fully More fully realise the world. Come on, George Miller. Give us more of that world. And it was a bit of a damp squib. 
What, what, I mean, what did you think of the of Beyond Thunderdome when you've seen it? I think it sort of lost steam. I think it had ran out of its... It sort of ran its course in terms of what do we do with the third one after the first two. Mm. The first one's like, there's all really cool idea, and then number two carries that momentum and the kind of thrill of it all. And the number three, I just don't think they had enough oomph for it, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I think it's weird, right? Because the, the actual Thunderdome... That's actually uh, really good, and that's one of the bits of the Mad Max mythology that has passed into um, sort of modern culture more than any other, even though Mad Max 2 was, at that point, by far the best Mad Max film. The idea of the Thunderdome and the idea of the town where there's gladiatorial combat for, like, you know, the chance to survive or trial by combat, and the whole barter town in that world, that's actually really, really good. But the story makes some really, really, really big wrong choices. And what one of them they, they called out in the beginning... in they, the 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 aviator character that robs Mad Max at the beginning, damages his car and forces him to go to the town that's got the Thunderdome in it, is played by the character from Mad Max Two, the aviator, who is Mel Gibson. He's Mel Gibson's ally in that film, and in this one, he plays a completely different character. They don't know each other, even though they get the same actor in roughly the same plane to attack him. And you just think, why do that? Because for the first ten minutes, everyone who's seen the previous film is going. What the fuck's going on? That's the same guy from the last movie, but he doesn't know him and he's just attacked him. Why would he do that? So that was just stupid. I don't know why he did that. And I think it's because he, he, for some reason, George Miller, I think he just made some wrong choices with this movie because he said, let's have Max be attacked by an aviator character and that'll be the incident for the film. And having made that choice, he said, why don't we just get the actor from the last film to play him even though he's a different character? It's like, well, it's just a dumb choice. And then when he disappears off and meets the Goonies, that's when this film really goes off track. Because it's basically the Goonies dressed as Ewoks, and they become... It's one of these 80s kind of tropes that I really got sick of very quickly. It's cute kids and comedy sidekicks. And this film's got too many of those. It's got the kind of dim-witted guy from the the the, the picture engine room of who, who tags along. It's like, how many happy-go-lucky friend, friends does Mad, Mad Max need to have in this movie? I want him to be in car chases and, 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 and fight people, you know? And the really good car chase in this movie is right, right, right at the end. And you just think, where's the, where's the action? Do you know what I mean? It's too toned down and too quirky and, and wastes a good scenario. I mean, so my remake would be find some other instigating incident for, um, for Max at the, at, the, at the beginning. Not a confusing aviator character that we think is someone from the first film. He ends up in Thunder in Bartertown. Um, if I'm honest, I would get rid of uh, Tina Turner. I don't think she's a good enough actress for that part. Do you agree? Yeah, she's not strong enough. And her character needs to be. I, mean, I don't want this to be all pervasive because actually the central having her character is quite witty and and like is sometimes amused by the people that are that are fighting her, and I think that is quite fun. It shouldn't be all. You know the 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 villains from the the first, second, and fourth films are all just all out baddies. And I think it was quite fun that she found Mad Max kind of amusing and liked his. I like I like your spirit. I like your pluck. But at the end of the day, she still got to be like this bad person who's oppressing everybody. You know. Um, drop the eighty saxophone music. Get rid of that. Huh. And. I think it would be more fun if you find out more about that auntie entity character because I think she needs to be less of a cartoon tyrant. There is an element of she runs a functioning town. Do you know what I mean? They have energy. They have fuel. 
They have places you can come to buy and sell things. It's not an easy world to live in. It is the apocalypse. Can, can she justify the world that she lives in? Do you know what I mean? I think it'd be more interesting if you actually explore her. You know, she is exploiting and destroying people, but at the end of the day, she's she might see herself as the only person keeping order in this world, you know? Um, and then, I mean, I mean, did you like the kids? Did you like the little sort of oasis of kids at, at the end? Was did, No, I thought... It is weak. Let let's let's see it for what it is. It is weak. I I think it would be, I think it would be better if when Max escapes, there needs to be like a car chase and a battle early on because you watch Mad Max films for the car chase and you don't want to wait an hour and forty minutes for almost the end of the film before you see Mad Max fighting customized dune buggies and jumping from vehicle to vehicle and stabbing people. Right, that's got to be in the film a lot more than just at the end. Okay, so you got to have that. But maybe when Max escapes and finds the Oasis, or maybe he stumbles across someone from the Oasis because they keep sneaking down to Bartertown for supplies. Maybe it's not like a bunch of kids who think that there's a pilot going to fly them to safety. Maybe there's like the Oasis is a, a group of people living there. Maybe it's kids and adults and like a, a whole environment. And they sneak down to Bartertown because they need supplies, and but they don't want to be discovered. But then um, Auntie wants to take the Oasis and Max knows they will destroy it. And then there's a battle over that. I think that would make a better better story. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and maybe it maybe at the end he's got to make a decision about what's going to happen to Bartertown. You know, does he stay? Does he go? I just think it needs to be nastier. It needs there needs to be more car chases and more battles. And that oasis needs to be more than just a bunch of kids, like like hope you know, hoping that there's going to be a plane one day. That's just got to have more to it. You know. Yeah. No, I agree. But I mean, this had the opportunity to actually be like a really excellent kind of uh, sort of tip of the hat to like the first trilogy. And it ends up being a bit of a damp squib. I think it needed to be more of a nasty Mad Max film because that's what you turn up to watch, you know. And yeah. and then F Fury Road would have, I think Fury Road would have, I think it would have had more support in the first place. I mean, Fury Road was fine. Fury Road was a triumph. But I do remember thinking... After Thunderdome, do I want George Miller to come back and tarnish his legacy even further? Do you know what I mean? Whereas I think if he'd done Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome properly, it would have been, yep, more please, anytime you like, more please. Uh, instead of just, uh, yeah, we've got a nice theme, thong, theme song for Tina Turner. You know, she wore the outfit in the video. That's it, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. I don't think there's... There's not many redeeming qualities about this, so... It, I mean, I, I, st I still kind of like it. There are bits I like, but it could have been so much better. There would be... Yeah, there would be a lot to be done to make this film more palatable. Mm -hmm. I think the whole second half of the film needs to be different, and the first half needs more car chases. I think if you were to boil it down to a sentence. But yeah, that's, uh, that's, our, uh, that's our attempts to fix the Mad Max, the original Mad Max trilogy. That's all for this month's Double Real Features. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Take Shelter is available to watch for free on the streaming service We Do TV if that's available where you are. Otherwise, it can be bought or rented from the usual digital and physical sources. The story of David Lynch's Ronnie Rocket is told in the book The Greatest Sci-Fi Movies Never Made by David Hughes, and the script is available to read online. 
Tune in next week for The Big Conversation, where we'll be discussing the films and career of the late, great William Friedkin. We look forward to speaking to you then. Take care in the meantime.